Lead to Win is brought to you by Leaderbox, a monthly reading experience curated by leaders for leaders. Learn more at leaderbox.com. Okay, here we go. We live in an instant culture. Amazon delivers same day. We can consume almost any media with a click. And algorithms serve up what we want before we know we want it. But when everything comes fast and easy, we risk underdeveloping one key leadership skill. Many economists predicted a down economy after World War II. Instead, we experienced an economic boom unlike anything before. As affluence spread, so did consumerism and the technology to propel it, creating a culture of instant gratification and self-indulgence. Patience became a passe virtue, and unfortunately, that could be costing leaders more than they realize. It reminds me of Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park. Don't you see the danger... Uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? No, not really. Many of us don't. If we're too used to things coming fast and easy, we can miss out on things that take patience and persistence. And let's be honest, that's most of the significant things in life. Even worse, we miss out on becoming the kind of leaders that only patience and persistence can develop. What do I mean? Well, think about marshmallows tried to think of the most harmless thing something i loved from my childhood something that could never ever possibly destroy us mr stay puffed the famous stanford marshmallow experiment measured the effects of willpower on young children kids were given the option of taking one marshmallow immediately versus waiting up to 20 minutes and getting two marshmallows some kids saw the benefit to waiting and getting more Others figured that they had a perfectly good marshmallow in front of them, thank you very much, and popped it in their mouths without a second thought. Now, you might think that's no big deal. It's just a marshmallow after all. But psychologist Walter Michel thought it might be significant. So he followed up with those same kids as adults. What he found was a lot bigger than one or two chewy treats. Michel shared findings decades later in a book appropriately titled The Marshmallow Test. Those preschoolers weren't just waiting around for another marshmallow, he explained. In fact, he said, how they did or didn't manage to delay gratification unexpectedly turned out to predict much about their future lives. The more seconds they waited at ages four or five, the higher their SAT scores and the better rated their social and cognitive functions were in adolescence. And there's more. At age 27 to 32, he said, those who had waited longer during the marshmallow test in preschool had a lower body mass index and a better sense of self-worth, pursued their goals more effectively, and coped more adaptively with frustration and stress. More interesting is that Michelle discovered the kids who wait for the second marshmallow don't magically possess more willpower than the others. The difference is that the successful kids are able to boost their frustration tolerance. Michel saw a wide array of delay tactics from the children trying to hold out for that second marshmallow. They looked away from the marshmallow. They got as far away from it as they could. They made up songs and made funny faces. They tried to take a nap. They listed out loud the benefits of waiting. They cleaned out earwax with a finger and focused on that. (laughs) Yuck. But here's why that experiment matters for leaders today. 
the kids with higher frustration tolerance got much greater returns for their temporary self-denial than they could have ever predicted, along with that second marshmallow. Well, today's culture of immediate gratification tells us, go for that first marshmallow right now. And we can, but there's a big difference between can and should. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. In a world of instant gratification, that's a concern for all of us. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt, and this is Lead to Win, my weekly podcast designed to help you win at work, succeed at life, and lead with confidence. In this episode, we're going to explore the unpopular value of self-denial. I'm here with my co-host, COO of Michael Hyatt and & Company, and my eldest daughter, Megan Hyatt-Miller. Thanks for joining me, Megan. Hey, Dan. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm excited about this topic. As you mentioned, Dad, our topic today is self-denial. But can I be honest for a minute? Yeah. I really hate that term. Really? I do. It is, first of all, the least sexy leadership term of all time. Okay. You're probably right. <laughs> okay. So we're going to go with frustration tolerance because I think that sounds much more psychologically elevated or something. Uh, because that's really what we're saying, right? We're talking about the ability to tolerate the discomfort that comes from not taking the quick win or the easy way out. Right. I mean, it is the same thing as self-denial, but you're right. It's a little more sexy. Right. So we mentioned the delay tactics of the marshmallow kids. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't really see those working here. I mean, singing, earwax. I can see my probably, kids doing that, right that, but I don't really think that would work in leadership. The good news is that we have three other practices to help us develop our frustration tolerance. You ready to unpack those? Yep. Okay. So practice number one is to control your attention. It's really about, can we say no to distractions so we can say yes to our most important priorities. Now, this is really difficult given the state of modern technology. I mean, we're pulled in every possible way, every few minutes, sometimes every few seconds, to answer this message, check that account. I mean, there's a bazillion things that are competing for our attention at any one time. And it's really distraction masquerading as multitasking. That's so true. As Herbert Simon, a Carnegie Mellon professor of computer science and psychology once said, information consumes the attention of its recipients, and a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. And that's what we've got today, a poverty of attention. Absolutely true. Okay, so there are three major results of distraction that we want to discuss here today. Okay. First, distraction costs us. The research says our brains don't actually multitask. They just switch between tasks. We lose momentum and efficiency every time we switch. I mean, we feel this intuitively, don't we? Right. It's like you try to go from one thing to the next and you feel almost disoriented and kind of, I don't know, just out of sorts. Yeah, and it takes you a while to get back into the next task and you feel like you're just your focus is everywhere and nowhere. Absolutely. In fact, the University of London says that workers distracted by emails and phone calls suffer a fall, get this, in their IQs that is twice that found in marijuana smokers. That's crazy. What? One study by the University of California at Irvine found office workers took an average of 25 minutes to resume a task after an interruption like an email or a phone call. That's almost half an hour. I mean, it's a huge amount of time, but if you think back or reflect on your own practice, it's true. 
you know, you get interrupted and it, it just takes a while to get back into the next thing. Well, how often have you come back at the end of the day or from a meeting and realize you have a half written email or a half written message or something that you started got interrupted? And you completely forgot to go back to it. Right. Or, disorienting. And on some days, it may take you an entire day to get that email message right. written because you're constantly being interrupted. No doubt. Cal Newport refers to this phenomenon as attention residue. Listen to what he has to say about it. Attention residue is arguably one of the most important effects that knowledge workers should know about, but do not. It's actually really simple to replicate in the lab. What happens is with attention residue is that if you are focused on one task, and then you switch your attention to another task, even if only briefly. When you come back to the original task, there is a residue left in your brain. And this residue reduces your cognitive performance and can take a long time to actually clear out, 5, 10, 15, even 20 minutes until you're back to your original cognitive capacity. So this means if you, like most knowledge workers, primarily single task, except do these quick checks, every five or 10 minutes to an inbox or to your phone or to a web browser, what you're actually doing is keeping yourself in a persistent state of reduced cognitive performance. So attention residue is a sort of hidden killer for knowledge work productivity. People who think they're doing a good job of focusing on one thing at a time, not keeping multiple inboxes and windows open simultaneously, might actually be, because of quick checks creating attention residue, unintentionally reducing how much they're able to perform, how much they're able to produce, and the quality levels that they're, they're actually able to achieve. So I often advise for knowledge workers, one of the most effective things you can do to get your productivity up is that when you work on one thing, make sure that the number of context switches, that is any glance to anything different than what you're doing, is minimized to zero. It doesn't matter how long the context switch is, it doesn't matter how much time you spend on the distraction, it's the cost of actually switching your attention itself that's going to reduce your performance. So what about the annual price tag to all that lost productivity? According to a study by Basics Research, it's $588 billion annually. That's almost real money. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it is. Jonathan Spira, author of the book Overload, says it's almost twice that. He estimates that interruptions and information overload eat up 28 billion wasted hours a year at a cost of almost $1 trillion to the U.S. economy. Wow, that is That's crazy. Yeah, it is. The second result of distraction is that it's addictive. And you know the pattern. You get stumped on something tough at work or maybe you just get bored. But instead of pushing through the difficulty, you bounce off to find something easier like email or Slack or social media. In their book, The Distracted Mind, professors Adam Ghazali and Larry Rosen say it's because humans are inherently information-seeking. And they cite a study of Stanford University students whose computers were set to take screenshots of their activity throughout the day. The students rarely stayed on one screen very long. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Researchers attached sensors to the students to measure their level of arousal. Several seconds before they switched screens, the sensors signaled an uptick in arousal, especially when jumping from hard tasks like writing or research to entertaining activity like social media or watching videos. And we've got to be aware of what is happening to our brains. When we bail on a problem and jump to Facebook, for example, 
we get a dopamine hit. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that gives us a small but pleasurable reward for behavior. It's the same thing that drives addictive behaviors, really of all kinds. And if we're not careful, we can get addicted to it. It can become a kind of self-induced ADD condition. This is why it's so hard to break free from Facebook or Twitter or whatever else distracts us. And in fact, the more we do it, the more we get addicted to it because we're addicted to dopamine. Absolutely. And it's also why it's so critical to develop frustration tolerance, because if you come into this kind of situation unarmed, I mean, you don't have a chance. No, you don't. The third result of distraction is that it leads to overwork. Research shows that multitaskers do work faster, but that they actually produce less. According to Stanford University psychology professor Clifford Nass, that's because when we focus on one task, we filter what's important for the completion of the task. But when we multitask, we lose the ability to decide what's relevant and what's not. We start wasting time by processing useless information. But the hours we've wasted don't change the results we're responsible for, right? I mean, we still have to make things happen, get things done that we're responsible for. So we wind up staying later to accomplish the task that we didn't finish. It's no surprise then that according to Gallup, 20% of full-time employees in the U.S. work more than 60 hours a week. Yeah, that's a lot. It is a lot. But it's all based on this distraction and our lack of frustration tolerance. Now, before we move into our next practice, I want to offer a strategy to help combat distraction. One of the problems that most of us have is we attempt to get too much done during the day. Right. So we have 20 things to do on our to-do list, and we accomplish you know, 10, 11, 12 things, And then we feel like a failure, we feel overwhelmed, and worse, all those things distract us and keep us from really focusing on what's important. So one of the things that I advocate in my course, Free to Focus, and in the Full Focus Planner, is something I call the Big Three, or the Daily Big Three. And the idea is to pick out three really important tasks, things that if you accomplished would really move the needle in your business or in your life, things that are related to your goals, things that are important, but not necessarily urgent. Now, you can have some of the other tasks as well, but you've got to get focused on those big three. If you accomplish those, you're going to be fine. Now on to practice number two, control your attitude. So the conventional wisdom when we think about controlling our attitude is a lot about positivity, right? right? We want to avoid negativity because we want to be focused on positivity because that's what produces positive results. That drives me crazy. Why? Well, because I think that both negativity and positivity are mechanisms that people use to avoid pain, right? So like if you're focused on being positive all the time, that could be actually very dangerous in business and leadership. Well, that's definitely the case. And I've certainly seen that in business where somebody was kind of in la-la land, deluded in and convinced themselves that it was all going to turn out okay when they actually were avoiding the work and the challenge of making sure that it turned out okay. For example, if you think about risk management, you sure as heck wouldn't want to have a CFO that was overly positive. I mean, that could be disastrous. Right. You want reality. You want reality. On the other hand, negativity is another way of avoiding pain because you're just sort of catastrophizing and going to the worst possible outcome and and sort of being fatalistic about it where you take away your own agency and you're you're just assuming that the worst thing is going to happen. So that's another way of kind of fast forwarding to your worst case scenario, all your fears in your mind have come true and you're avoiding pain. Both are unhelpful in terms of controlling your attitude, negativity or positivity. Yep, absolutely. So let's talk about an alternative to that because I really think there is one. I don't think it's either optimism or pessimism, there's an alternative that actually kind of embraces both and is a better alternative to either one of those. So I would kind of couch these as um, as truths, 
And truth number one is that pessimism without optimism leads to cynicism. Mm. Now, most of us know that pessimism is the wrong approach. I mean, you know, there's some question and debate about optimism, but pessimism, I think all of us can agree that that by itself is not a good thing. According to psychologist Michael Shire, pessimists don't perform as well in life as optimists. As Shire says, pessimists, quote, tend to deny, avoid, and distort the problems they confront and dwell on their negative feelings, end quote. And we all know what it feels like to be cornered by a by an Eeyore who insists on seeing the worst in everything. I never forget, I was at a publishing conference when an author cornered me and began to just complain about everything. His career wasn't going well. And according to him, it was the agent's fault, or it was the publisher's fault, or the publicist didn't get enough publicity for him. It was everybody's fault, but his. And it was so negative. I finally just had to excuse myself and say, oh, you know what? I need to go because I couldn't take it. It was just very, very negative. So I see it kind of as a three-tiered sickness. Mm -hmm. So negativity descends into pessimism and then into cynicism. Oh, which is the worst. Which is the worst. I mean, cynicism is kind of like cardiovascular disease for your soul, where it becomes calcified and hardened and your knee-jerk response is always negative, negative. Brene Brown explains our inclination towards cynicism with the term foreboding joy. I love that. It's the reluctance to believe the best for fear of disappointment. Yeah, I tell you what, when I heard her talk about this the first time, it hit me like a ton of bricks. She uses an example, I think, of uh, when you go and you kiss your child goodnight at bedtime, and then you start imagining them dying of some tragic mm-hmm. accident or illness, and you just start spinning the kind of movie trailer voices in your head, and you start thinking of all the horrible things that could happen and what would happen if you lost them. And what it does, it's, it's a self-protective mechanism that robs you of joy in the present because you're trying to avoid avoid pain again, like we were just talking about. So true. So again, she said, I think in that same uh, clip that we both saw, when we lose our tolerance for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. I just love that. But that inclination towards cynicism isn't the only wrong attitude. Let's explore the next one. All right. So truth number two is that optimism without pessimism leads to delusion. This is a particularly scary one. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that this whole optimism thing really started gaining ground in the 50s with the publication of The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale, right? Yeah. And that book is not all bad for sure. I mean, believe it or not, my dad only paid me to read one book in my entire (laughs) teenage years. And it was this book. He paid me $20 to read this book when I was a teenager. And it had a lot of positive impact on me. But if you're not careful and you only look on the sunny side of everything, it can be an incredible trap. And I happen to know one of Dr. Peel's disciples who built a pretty big enterprise. He was one of our authors when I was at Thomas Nelson Publishers. And that enterprise ended up going bankrupt toward the end of his life. He lost not only that business, but his legacy. Wow. And it was... Really tragic it's a sad and really story. a shame. But he had his head so high in the clouds, only looking at the positive, that he didn't factor in the negative stuff that he really needed to be paying attention to mm-hmm. in order to fix the business and keep it on track. Well, I think this is when you stop reading your financial statements. You stop checking your bank balances. You stop kind of monitoring the metrics of your business. And you sort of ignore all those people that come and bring you the warnings. And you say, yeah, 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 but I know it's going to be great. And you just head straight for the iceberg in total denial. 
Right. And the worst part about it is you're training all the people that are under your leadership to do the exact same thing. So there's like a domino effect through your entire organization where it's all happy talk all the time. And I'm all for optimism. Right. But again, unless you face the reality, unless you include with it pessimism where it's warranted, it's going to lead to delusion. Right. And delusion ain't good. It leads to destruction ultimately because you don't have the opportunity to course correct why you can and the crash is much bigger. That's right. Okay, that brings us to truth number three. Hopeful realism leads you to pivot. Like Tom Petty said, I like to be an optimist, but I like to be a realist too. Boy, that's well put. The problem is that both pessimism and optimism omit a portion of reality. And and frankly, it's a portion that you can't afford to omit. You want your perception of the world to match reality, but retain a belief that you can influence that reality to achieve a good outcome. And it's what I'm calling hopeful realism. I love that, by the way. You do? I think that's a great balance of not avoiding negative feelings, but also retaining your agency. Yeah. So I I think we've got to shed this kind of either or thinking Mm -hmm. and embrace a sort of both and thinking. Yes. So this term really holds in tension both the tough realities that we're facing on the one hand Mm -hmm. and the incredible agency we have to influence their outcome. So it empowers us to pivot, as I started with, to shift strategies and take action to rewrite the end of the story. So this has happened for us in a lot of product launches, right? Mm -hmm. Where we started down one path and we were so excited. We thought everything was going to work great. And yet the early results would indicate that something was off. You know, maybe it's our communication strategy. Maybe it was the offer. Maybe it was the product design. It could have been a host of things. But we could have just talked ourselves into a place where, you know, this can turn out okay in the end. Don't worry about it and not take action, and then end up disappointed when reality came crashing down around us because we were ignoring it. We had our head in the clouds. So hopeful realism would take the approach of saying, whoa, something is missing here and we need to pay attention to it. Yes, All the happy talk in the world is not going to fix that. We've got to pay attention to it. We've got to do our analysis and we've got to take corrective action. So the bottom line is that success isn't a straight line. Acknowledging failure unleashes our creativity. We don't need to be afraid of that. Our best problem solving and our personal agency. I love that. You know, whenever we have something that doesn't work quite the way we hope in our business, and I was thinking about this in preparation uh, for our recording today, this happens every year, at least once or twice. I cannot think of an exception in our entire existence as a business where this hasn't happened. Something, inevitably, many things go very well, but something doesn't go well. And in the early days, I think that kind of created anxiety for us. But now it's sort of like, okay, it's not working. And we really ask better questions when we acknowledge that, that we would never ask outside of that moment of failure. It keeps us from being complacent. It keeps us from getting too comfortable. Yep. And it really propels us toward innovation and creativity in a way that, frankly, success never would. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I like how this is articulated by Jim Collins in the book, Good to Great where he talks about something he calls the Stockdale Paradox. Do you remember this from the book? Yeah. That's yeah, a great story. And it comes from the true story of Admiral James Stockdale, who was an eight-year prisoner of war, which I can't imagine, but it all happened during the Vietnam War uh, era. And so, as it turns out, when he was released from the prisoner of war camp, a reporter asked him, he said, wow, you know, you made it for eight years. Congratulations. Who were the guys that didn't make it? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, that's easy. The Optimus. 
And I remember the first time I saw that, I was or read that, I was was shocked. Right. It's exactly backwards of what you would think. You would think he would say the pessimists. Sure. They were negative and they they just died because they were so negative. Right. But he doesn't say that. He says it was the optimist and he says they died of a broken heart. Wow. And then he goes on to explain it. And he says that uh, these were the guys that believed that they would be out by Easter and then Easter would come and go and they weren't out. And then he says, they would say, well, we'll be out by the end of the summer. And the end of the summer would come and go and they weren't out. And then it was Christmas. And he said, they died of a broken heart. Hmm. And that's a problem with optimism because ultimately, if that's all you have, you're going to have a head-on collision with reality. Yes. Wow. And that's going to be so discouraging that you're going to want to quit. And so he summarizes it this way in the book. He says, the Stockdale Paradox is simultaneously doing two things. Number one, confronting the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. And number two, retaining faith that you will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties. And this is exactly what great leaders do. They're able to acknowledge the most brutal facts of their current reality. They don't mince words. They don't try to dance around it. They don't try to gussy it up and make it better than it is, but they acknowledge it for what it is. But on the other hand, they retain faith that they'll prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties. That's a hard tension to hold. It is. And yet it's essential if you're going to lead well. It is. And that's why we're always advocating for this hopeful realism idea. Yep, exactly. So to put this one into action, simply pause the next time you're facing a big challenge and ask two things. What are the harsh realities right now? And don't be afraid to let them speak for themselves. Don't feel like you got to polish them. You got to make them better than they are. But what are the harsh realities right now? And then what actions can I take to improve the end result of those realities? Because you do have agency. And if you've got the courage to grapple honestly with both of those questions, you'll unleash the power of hopeful realism in your situation. I love that. And I think an important point for leaders is to ask your teams or your team those questions. Yes. To include them in the conversation. And they will have so much more trust and faith in you when they know that you're willing to say what's honest and real about what's happening than sort of feel like they have to keep up a front. Uh, I think what will happen, what we've experienced certainly in our organization, is that that's where the breakthroughs come in. That's where the yes. creativity comes from. Very often those things come not from ourselves as leaders, but from the people that we're leading when we give them an opportunity to voice their ideas. Well, and and what's important about this, if you're not really careful about this, if you insist on optimism and people start sugarcoating the facts, you're going to get increasingly separated from the truth as a leader. And your perception of what's going on is going to be distorted. Mm -hmm. So if you have any hope of succeeding, you've got to know the truth of the situation. You've got to know the facts and you've got to create an environment where it's safe to come to you with those brutal facts, even if they're negative. Love that. Okay, before we continue our conversation on practices that increase our frustration tolerance, I want to pause for just a minute to talk about a new resource that you've created to help guarantee that we grow as leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm so excited about this new product. It's called LeaderBox, and it's essentially leadership development that comes in a box. It's a monthly curated reading experience designed to maximize your time, grow your leadership, and accelerate your results as a leader. It delivers personal and professional development to your door, helping you get through two books a month in just 30 minutes a day. 
That is so important because we're all just so busy. I mean, we know that reading is vital to our continued growth as leaders, right? But there's so many books out there competing for our attention that it can be challenging just to decide what to read, let alone find the time to read the books and then apply those lessons to our businesses. Gosh, I mean, it can be overwhelming fast. Exactly. And that's where Leaderbox comes in. So my team and I have a combined experience, get this, of over 50 years in the book publishing industry. (laughs) I mean, it's a lot. lot. And we're leveraging all that know-how to bring you the most valuable books each month, the ones that are really going to move the needle in your life and business, in a curated subscription-based service. Two books, custom activation guides, and more will arrive on your doorstep each month. And just to say it again, you can get through this in 30 minutes a day, which that's is right. crazy. I mean, that's a lot of books to read in a year in 30 minutes a day. And actually, it's only 21 days of the month. We give you the weekends off. Okay, so that happens in the activation guide. So talk a little bit about what is in those. Yeah, so this includes a 21-day reading plan, executive book summaries, action steps, a list of related resources, plus my proprietary book insights framework to help you quickly internalize the key concepts. It's an easy, complete subscription that allows you to automate your growth in just minutes a day. I love this solution because I think it solves a very real need for leaders who are committed to personal growth and professional growth, but they need to achieve it as quickly as possible. I mean, come on, we don't have time to sit around for hours every day like we're professional students, right? Plus, unlike so many subscription services, you're offering the option to cancel at any time. Yeah, that was a that was a big decision for us, but we wanted to take all the risk out so that leaders can get the development tools they need without having to worry about being locked in if it's not right for them. So for those who are interested, where can they find out more? Well, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> you can subscribe now at leaderbox.com and I'll encourage you to do that today so you don't miss the cutoff for the next box. Yeah, that's important because each box is only available for one month and there's no way to get your hands on them after that, right? That's true. So the books in the activation guide this month are great and I don't want you to miss out. So subscribe now. Great. I hope all of you will go check that out. Now let's dive back into our discussion on self-denial or as I would prefer to call it, frustration tolerance. (laughs) You're not going to let that one go. I'm really not. Okay. So practice number three, control your appetites. This is really about saying no to immediate gratification. Why? So we can say yes to long-term gains. And that's the way we need to frame it. As Brene Brown says, integrity is choosing courage over comfort, choosing what is right over what is fun, fast, or easy, and choosing to practice our values rather than simply professing them. My friend, Andy Stanley, calls this trading the ultimate for the immediate. And then he goes on to explain why we do this, because our appetites are never fully satisfied. Listen to this. Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Would you just say that with me? Appetites are never fully and finally. Now you know this because you've sat down at a meal and you've eaten till you thought you were gonna throw up. And you said, I can't eat another thing. And three hours later, you're at the refrigerator looking for something else to eat, right? Why? Because appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Now we know that when it comes to food, the same is true of sex. The same is true of acceptance. The same is true of progress. The same is true of creativity. 
There is no appetite that is ever fully and finally satisfied. And the lie that you will be tempted to believe for the rest of your life is that there's somebody out there that can fully and finally satisfy an appetite. There's something out there that can fully and finally satisfy an appetite. There's some recognition out there that can fully and finally satisfy an appetite. But you need to know for the rest of your life, the way appetites are designed, they are never, ever fully and finally satisfied. There aren't enough touchdowns. There's not enough kisses. There aren't enough awards. There aren't enough cars. There aren't enough shoes. There aren't, their appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. You never go, I'm done. I'm done. Never, ever, ever. As Andy said, we chase instant gratification, believing it will finally satisfy those insatiable desires. This leads us to make three very dangerous trade-offs. Can you share the first with us here? Yes. Trade-off number one, health for pleasure. Okay, now we're back in marshmallow land. I really like the marshmallows. I do too. That's a it's a great uh, metaphor, a great story. How many No, I, I mean actual marshmallows. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was getting all metaphorical. Here. I was seeing like jet puff in my in my imagination. Okay. We'll get some of those after this podcast. Okay. <laughs> okay, so how many daily choices do we make for momentary satisfaction despite the long-term adverse impact they have on our health? I mean, just take a few examples like junk food, soft drinks, smoking, clicking away the evening on Facebook. Wait, 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 you're getting too personal. I know. Or opting for another episode of our favorite TV show or binge all four Jurassic Park movies instead of getting a good night's sleep. TV binging is a real problem. In fact, when Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, was asked about our greatest competitor, their greatest competitor in a 2017 earnings call, he didn't identify another streaming platform like Hulu. Get this. Hastings said, quote, we're competing with sleep. Oh my gosh. This is terrifying to me. I know. I mean, this is like slap your head. I don't know what. It's like their goal is to keep you awake all night. Literally. Yeah. Which is not that helpful for the rest of us. Mm -mm. So if we're not careful, short-term pleasure can become the enemy of long-term vibrant health. And I think really good leaders are able to say no to these things, knowing that they're in it for the long game. Not the short-term gratification, but for the long game. All right, so trade-off number two when we fall prey to instant gratification is that we trade intimacy for admiration. The truth is, this is probably what's behind all indiscretions in marriage, don't you think? Absolutely. I think the truth is we are built for intimacy, but so often we'll settle for admiration. Right. Intimacy is work. Admiration is cheap and easy, right? It doesn't require anything of us. And I think social media actually cultivates this. I think so too. Tell me more about what you're thinking on that. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I wrote the book Platform and it was really about how to build a social media following. But the problem is that a lot of people um, use that that probably shouldn't be using it because they like kind of the the fast track to fame. Right. They want admiration rather than building intimacy with the people that are closest around them. And I think this is a real problem when we think we're developing relationships with thousands of people and we're neglecting the people that are closest to us, yeah. the people that we could have an intimate, more meaningful, more satisfying relationship with. So again, just to your point, I think we've got to be careful that we don't make this trade of intimacy for admiration. Yeah. In your example, I think we're talking about pandering to fans of our brand or business that give us that kind of quick hit, like dopamine, ego boost sort of thing, and neglecting an issue with somebody, for example, on our team that we need to address or in our business or with our family or friends that requires us to go deeper, to have uncomfortable conversations, to really engage at a level that requires so much more of us than just a simple one-way admiration that feels good and is easy. 
Well, the, the truth is about intimacy, it, it's usually on the other side of conflict. In other words, you got to push through the conflict to get to intimacy, but that takes work and that takes the ability to delay gratification. It totally does. I think the challenge before us when we think about frustration tolerance is to do the hard and messy work of cultivating real intimacy in our relationships and with the people in our businesses, whatever, instead of settling for admiration. Yeah, I agree. Okay, then trade-off number three, long-term success for short-term achievement. You know, one of the greatest appetites that we've got to control, and I think we've got to be honest here as leaders, is our ambition. Yep. You know, this is the thing that drives us to overwork at the expense of our health, our families, and our long-term career endurance. And it doesn't help when some of the cultural icons of our day are people like Elon Musk, and for all the good he's doing, and I think Teslas are great cars, and I would love to have one. But it's kind of a negative example, because this is a guy that advocates working 80 to 100 hours a week. And people lose their families. They lose their health. They lose their businesses by doing that. That's blind ambition that's not tempered by integrity Mm -hmm. and by the ability to deny that for the sake of something even uh, greater. So an addiction to overwork can have disastrous consequences. Alexandra Michelle of the University of Pennsylvania conducted a 12-year study of investment bankers who regularly worked between, get this, 100 and 120 hours a week. There's only 168 hours in a week. So these financial workers were shorting sleep, relationships, self-care, and honestly, just about everything else. And not surprisingly, Michelle found that these bankers were amazingly productive for the first few years, given their solitary focus, almost, almost a monastic focus. Right. Also not surprising, it didn't last. So according to Michelle, starting in year four, Bankers started to experience sometimes debilitating physical and psychological breakdowns. They suffered from chronic exhaustion, insomnia, back and body pain, autoimmune diseases, heart arrhythmias, among other illnesses. And as their performance plummeted, she said, they simply compensated for their diminishing output by working longer. Talk about crazy. Which caught them in a cycle of escalating work hours and chronic physical and emotional distress. So while conditions for most of us are less extreme than these experienced by the bankers, we've all been pulled into the trap of grinding away on some short-term project, some short-term win that's at odds with our long-term purpose. Instead, we've got to have the vision and the courage to pursue sustainable success. And that's a very different thing than pursuing these short-term wins. In fact, this actually was something that I had to confront very recently. Um, Our listeners may not know that I have four children with my husband, Joel, and two of those children are adopted and have some special needs. Our youngest son uh, had some really significant issues come up this summer that we had to address, and that necessitated me taking a leave of absence from our company for an entire month. This was, as you might imagine, unplanned. It wasn't like we see crises in our family or health or whatever coming, Um, but I had to choose to to step away so that I could give him the attention and the care that he needed during that time to help him kind of get on more solid footing. And we traveled to go to Ohio to see a special therapist and all kinds of different things that we did. Uh, and that was a, a hard choice for me. You know, well, how, did, how did you feel as you were contemplating that choice? 
I had a ton of anxiety about it. In fact, you and I had a phone conversation. It wasn't my idea, by the way. It was uh, my mom who <laughs> called me, I think, after talking to you. And she was very empathetic. And she just said, uh, and she's heavily involved in our business. So this wasn't kind of outside of the norm for her to do it. But she said, I just really think you ought to consider taking a leave of absence. I think this is too much for you to try to navigate these challenges while running the business at the same time. And I think you've built a staff and a team that can handle things while you're gone. Um, this, by the way, happened while you were also on sabbatical for a month. So it was a really unusual timing. So yeah, we I forgot about that. Yeah. Out at the same time for the same month. And it was the best decision that I ever made. But I'll tell you what, I really struggled with it, partly because in my mind, I thought, will I even have a job when I come back? You know, will my team be so good that the little uh, ripple that, you know, is made from the the rock that uh, gets thrown in the in the pool just close and no one will even notice when I come back? <laughs> <laughs> and it seems silly now, but it felt very real to me. I mean, you and I had a phone conversation where I cried. And I mean, I really kind of had to come to grips with how much significance and security I was getting from my work. And I needed to have that long-term vision for my family in mind and step away um, from what was the short-term win of whatever we were trying to accomplish in that month. And you know what? It was the best decision I could have made for my family and the business didn't suffer at all. At all. And and it was because I had that long-term perspective and I wasn't focused on the short-term. Well, you know how I felt about it as your father and as um, your boss was I was very proud of you because I thought that took a lot of confidence. I mean, I knew you were scared. I knew you were struggling with the anxiety and all that, but I was so proud that you were willing to do uh, that tough work to mm-hmm. overcome the frustration, we've right. been talking about frustration tolerance, to overcome you know those uncomfortable feelings for the sake of a long-term uh, gain. Right. And- Boy, could we tell the difference in uh, Jonah, your youngest son, when you guys came back from that? Right. I mean, it's not like everything magically got better, but it substantially improved. We had major breakthroughs, and that would not have happened no. if you had been if you had not given that your full focus for that month. Absolutely. So, not only did this not hurt the business, I think it was actually beneficial for the business, and here's why: it was really good for the team to have you away. Because it forced them to dig deep and find their own resources and be able to perform. And they did a great job. They did such a great job. They did. But the other thing was, because you were totally focused at home and got that situation handled, when you came back, you were even more present and more focused and accomplished more, I think, in the weeks after that leave of absence than you would have accomplished if you had just stayed present that whole time, sort of being distracted by by home. I think you're right. Okay. So, Megan, you're a great example of managing ambition. So not letting that get out of control, mm-hmm. but really playing the long game and being really focused on long-term success and not just satisfying short-term ambition. Thank you. I appreciate that. So the cure here is to learn to recognize legitimate appetites. They're the ones that are things that make you come alive versus numb out. I mean, right. that's, that's how we know the difference. So not that all appetites are bad. Right. Just you want to, you don't want to settle for the ones that are like an emotionally driven carb fest. You want the healthy, (laughs) nourishing meal, right? Right, exactly. For example, like a genuine conversation with a friend versus a boastful interaction with an acquaintance who you just want to impress. Good distinction. Or an hour spent intentionally pursuing a hobby that fulfills you versus an hour spent 
mindlessly scrolling through Facebook. Two different things. Two different things. I think the end game here is to kind of put a leash on your illegitimate desires, those ones that mm-hmm. cause you to want to numb out, and really lean into and dive in fully to the legitimate ones that bring you life and point you in the right direction. Right. Today, we've covered three practices to boost our frustration tolerance and gain the benefits of, here's that word again, self-denial, controlling our attention, our attitudes, and our appetites. If you've enjoyed today's episodes, you've got the show notes and a full transcript online at leadto.win. In today's episode, our entire aim has been to show you that some limits liberate. To borrow from St. Paul, all things may be permissible, but not all things are beneficial. In a society constantly urging us to grab the first marshmallow... (laughs) practicing a bit of self-denial here can lead to major rewards later on. Any final thoughts today, Dad? Yeah, I think this is an opportunity to really lean into this countercultural aspect of leadership. You know, leaders are different than the rest of everybody else, right? So if we want to just keep getting the same results that everybody else is getting, which is, you know, health that fails, burned out relationships, and all of that for the sake of what? You know, building a bigger empire, stuff we can't take with us. I remember Charles Swindoll once famously said he never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul. <laughs> you know, so so what are we doing all this for? So I think we've got to throttle that back and get very serious about self-denial, not just for the sake of self-denial, but for the sake of accomplishing something greater, for the sake of the people that we're leading, for the sake of the missions that we're serving, for the sake of the vision that we're trying to create. Fantastic. Okay, before we close, I want to remind you about Leaderbox. It's automated personal development in a box. Check it out at leaderbox.com. Thanks again for joining us on Lead to Win. If you like the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And also please leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This program is copyrighted by Michael Hyatt and Company, all rights reserved. Our producer is Nick Jaworski. Our writers are Joe Miller, Mandy Raviccio, and Jeremy Lott. Our recording engineer is Matt Price. Our production assistants are Mike Burns and Alicia Curry. And our intern is Winston. A few minutes ago, we mentioned the research of Alexandra Michelle and those 100-hour bankers. If you found that interesting, you're going to love our next episode. We'll be discussing how to beat the burnout culture that tempts us to work around the clock. Until then, lead to win. It's like I know what you're going to say before you even say it, because it's written right here. It's like the script is right in front of me. (laughs) 